time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in flesh! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, the Tom Sumner Program continues now. My guest this hour is um, an ethics professor with a new book that drops, as they say, tomorrow. And uh, the book is Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage. Dr. Tom Cooper joins me now by phone. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Um, and right off the bat, one of the uh, one of the portraits that you show involves uh, JFK, uh, President Kennedy, and the uh, well-known Cuban Missile Crisis. But that made me wonder how much this book is like his book, Profiles in Courage. Yes, I was inspired by Profiles in Courage as a child. And then I read Caroline Kennedy's book that about 30 years later she wrote as an homage to that called Profiles in Courage for Our Time. But I noticed both books, as much as I like them, were restricted pretty much to, you know, white politicians of previous generations and so forth. And I wanted to write a book showing that they're moral exemplars from every tradition. So I included Mandela and Gandhi and Malala and people, Socrates, and so forth, from uh, almost every time period and every continent and every religion and so forth, showing that there have been people in all cultures and traditions who've faced very difficult ethical decisions that could change world history. And I wanted people to see how they reasoned, how they thought, what they felt, what they were up against, um, so that we, when we have really tough decisions, can learn from the aggregate, from the total number of patterns when you look at all 12 of them what did they have in common why did they decide what they decided and i don't want to hold them all up as saints you may have your you know moral exemplars your role models that are different than some of these but i did want to show that they changed history that they made very courageous stands that all of them you know are people who might have changed our world in some way for example you mentioned kennedy the decision he made uh, could mean that we're alive and not dead. We might never have been born 
had there been a, a nuclear war that he could have easily triggered or Khrushchev on the other side could have easily triggered. So these are momentous uh, decisions in terms of life and death, but they're also important learning experiences. We can use the book in the classroom, we can use it in our own lives, because we're constantly facing ethical decisions ourselves. Well, Tom, if you were casting your net that wide, um, how, how did you manage to limit it to 12? I decided from, <laughs> yeah. That can't have been easy. Uh, no, absolutely. Even right now we could find, uh, you know, at least 100 frontline responders, maybe thousands of them who we could focus on. There are lots of people making very tough and important decisions as we speak. What I did was I sent out letters to over 200 ethicists and other uh, people who think about these kind of decision-making events in history and said, what are the toughest ones that are ever made? And I got the the six toughest and decided to add six more that were kind of in the running, but not as well known. For example, with Nelson Mandela, we all know about his later years, uh, overcoming apartheid, unifying Africa, um, winning a Nobel Peace Prize, becoming the leader of his country. All of those things are well known. But virtually no one knows the very first difficult ethical decision he faced that changed his whole life and that set his pattern for what he would do uh, that led to all those other momentous decisions. I decided in some cases to choose something obscure. In his case, in college, if he made a decision, he was going to be thrown out. And being thrown out uh, as, you know, at the only black college and so forth in South Africa, he would have no future education, be stigmatized, his tribe would, you know, be disgraced, his family would be disgraced, and so forth. He had to decide whether to stick to his guns, uh, which he did for the rest of his life, and be thrown out or not. So in some cases, I chose these kind of hidden behind-the-scenes ethical decisions. But in the case of someone like Truman, I chose a very well-known decision. Truman had to decide whether to drop the bomb or not at the end of World War II, knowing that if he did make nuclear power well-known, the Russians might get hold of it, the whole world might change, a lot of innocent people could be burned to death, all those things on the one hand. But if he didn't drop it on the other hand, he might not win the, the war, and the Japanese, even if they lost, were fighting to the last man. He was getting letters all the time from parents and others saying, how can you let my boys be tortured? How can you let my boys you know, uh, be killed and so forth? And there were some women in there as well. And almost every family in America was affected one way or another. He had to face up to this, knowing if he had the bomb and didn't use it, what could he say to those people? It's a very difficult decision. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how to frame this question, uh, Tom, but um, is this a book that's that's an homage to ethics, or... Uh, have ethics gone the way of chivalry, or th are they still alive and well? <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends on who you ask and where you look and so forth. I mean, if you're a cynic and if you're negative and so forth, you can certainly make a case in this day and time. The age of Enron, the age of Bernie Madoff, the age of all the Title IX and Me Too uh, cases, um, the age where Putin and Trump and Kim are the best-known leaders in the world, and none of them are probably people you'd want your children to model their ethics after and so forth. In that age, 
when people think ethics is disintegrating everywhere, you can make that case. But I just talked about frontline responders and people who are working far past their usual, you know, 8, 10, 12-hour shift even to keep other people alive. In a 9-11, the people who, who you know, risk their lives and people all over the world who are small-time heroes you don't hear that much about with tremendous integrity and ethics. So I think it, it depends on where you look. You talk about um, one of the profiles in your book is Rachel Carson. I was not familiar with her. Right. Um, how important was it to pick people who weren't big names like JFK and Truman and, and uh, people like well, that? As I looked at all, all the votes, you might say, that came in from the over 200 people I wrote and so forth and so on, and as I listened to people who had done a lot of historical research and so forth, her name did come up quite a bit. Um, and you may know of her and just not remember her name because she is the person most responsible for stopping the huge DDT onslaught. They were spraying DDT on everything back in the 50s and 60s and so forth. And she um, was a great scientist who stood up to the, pest, the over-pesticide uh, kind of uh, attempt to kill almost everything by constant dusting and spraying, which meant that children were in the back of those spraying uh, areas and, and getting damaged from that, and many insects and pets and other animals uh, were being killed or very sick. Birds were twitching on the ground. Nobody knew why and what and what to do about it because these were huge chemical companies that she was up against, Monsanto and Dow and those kind of companies. And they painted her as a kind of backpacky nerd who really, uh, you know, and for that matter, women weren't really allowed in major scientific roles in those days. So <laughs> The original tree hugger. Uh, yeah, that's it. They painted her in a way that was very demeaning and very disrespectful. And she had to decide if she'd go through with this. She had virtually every major health condition that you could have at the same time. A horrible heart condition, cancer. She was getting chemotherapy. She could barely see. She had all kinds of problems. She had just collapsed a week ahead of her. She was up against a huge system. And fortunately, uh, President Kennedy and a few other people took an interest in her and a few media and there was the possibility of her doing a major interview with CBS, but it would mean people living in her home for two or three days, doing lengthy interviews. She had a child in the background who she had taken over because her niece had been killed, and she didn't want him to be exposed. She had two horrible secrets that she had to keep hidden. She didn't want the media to uncover those, nor to show her. TV would have shown her cancer. She didn't want her critics to know she was dying or they would really take advantage of that. So she had this horrible decision to make about whether she would die for her cause or not, basically. And um, had she not made the decision she made, who knows uh, what our planet would be like regarding pesticides, because they were running rampant. They were important to stop malaria and other things. I want to show the positive side of using pesticides. But nobody knew how much. And the excess was so great that all kinds of havoc was being wreaked and, and would have continued had she not taken this very strong stand. In 
most of these cases you suggest that there's some risk attached for the person who's behaving ethically. Um, is that always the case? In the case of the 12 people I chose, and in many such cases, a person's usually facing an outer adversary, in this case people like Napoleon or Hitler and so forth, and an inner adversary, that is their fear, um, or perhaps their health in the case of Rachel Carson, or something else that's telling them, slow down, don't you know, put your face in harm's way in this particular situation. It'd be much easier to just not say anything. And so they're facing that inner struggle, and they're facing that outer opponent at the same time in these cases. And in most cases, when you and I have an ethical decision, there are probably people lobbying us on both sides, or we know we might lose faith or face with someone if we choose a particular direction. And people may not think, well, I don't have a lot of ethical decisions, but just look at the world right now. Um, almost all the questions we hear about COVID, who gets the ventilator, who gets the equipment, who wears the mask, do the schools reopen, when do businesses reopen? Those kind of questions, or if we look more at the racial tension and so forth, um, how much do we police our society, or for that matter, our own children, our young people? Uh, do we destroy statues of which ones? Um, do we defund the police, or do we refund, or, or do we transform? But if we look at our more private lives and so forth, uh, we have all kinds of other questions. Do we put our parents in nursing homes? Do we take those in comas off of life support? Do we carry guns? Should we allow others to? Do we believe in capital punishment? Do we fail borderline students if we're teachers? If we're employers, who do we hire and fire? Who's exempt from serving in the military, if anyone? Do we report lawbreakers in our family? What boundaries do we set for our children regarding their own drinking or driving or their curfew or their social media or their screens? What about our own alcohol, drug, and tobacco consumption? Or if we're pregnant, does that change? Those are just a few of the issues we face all the time. So I would say knowing what other people have done and learning from how some of the greats, we might say, made decisions, as well as taking ethics you know, workshops or whatever we want to do, uh, can only help us because we face a lot of tough decisions. Uh, Tom, I have to take a, uh, a short break here, um, and uh, but I want to talk about this some more because I, I I think ethics is something we could stand to talk a good deal more about. Can you stick around and talk some more? Absolutely. That'd be great. My guest is uh, Dr. Tom Cooper. We're talking about ethics as he does in his uh, new book coming out tomorrow, Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage. And um, we'll have more of my conversation with Tom after we let our broadcast partners at WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint squeeze a few words in edgewise. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well, so don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse more with Tom Cooper is straight ahead. 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bai from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. In just a little while, you folks are going to have the pleasure not only hearing the songs of the star of the program and all, but you're also going to have the pleasure of hearing and watching and seeing in person the gentlemen and ladies who have been supplying the fine mu- music behind the curtain this evening. It's a wonderful orchestra. I love to hear them play. But and while you would possibly never even consider counting how many piece- pieces there are in the band, it so happens there are about, I think, 26, 27 members of the orchestra, the stage orchestra here. And the only thing is they used to play in Ho- Hollywood. And when they were there in Hollywood, California, there were a 65-piece o- orchestra. And when they were hired by the Ni- International Hotel to come here and play, they all got on a bu- on a bus... All 65 of them with their instruments and everything and headed out for Las Vegas. The only thing was, when they crossed the Nevada state line, they had fruit inspection, and this is all slept. Here are some most happy fellas, the four lads for four. Standing on the corner, watching all the Fords go by. Thunderbird's kissing cousin Get in a Ford Get Ford a try So don't be standing on the corner 
This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We're talking about ethics and a new book coming out tomorrow called Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage by Dr. Tom Cooper, a uh, ethics professor who joins me by phone. Tom, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Absolutely. I should probably put in two plugs here. I'm at Emerson College, and I owe them everything, so I wanted to (laughs) plug Emerson. And also the book is available at all the usual places, but online probably during the pandemic is the easiest way to do it. So barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, and so forth. And and I will make sure we get a chance to uh, touch on those again before we're uh, before we're finished, Tom. Um, I, I had a screenwriter friend of mine who asked me once, and I still wrestle with this question: Would you rather be right or effective? So it's a great question, and it all depends on what you mean by effective in a particular situation perhaps being right is being effective they're not always mutually exclusive but does effective mean you get the most dollars or you get the most eyeballs if you're in media or does effective mean in the long term that you've stood for something that you've inspired other people to stand for and who knows that may lead to more dollars or eyeballs in the long run you don't know but you do know you can sleep with yourself at night you know, you brought up in the last segment the uh, the Truman example with uh, dropping the, the nuclear bombs on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And that's one of those things that some people felt was um, just a heinous act. Um, and, and yet... As, as you described it, and as Truman described it many times, um, he considered it to be the right thing because it was effective. Mm-hmm. Some people yeah. would think that, you know, there, there are no conditions that would justify using a weapon of mass destruction that powerful. Um, but that's, that's essentially, these are the kinds of... Um, decisions that that you focus on in the book. Absolutely. And as with all of us, there was a public Truman and a private Truman. And what he wrote, and I I got into this, because when you get into autobiographies and biographies and letters that were written to relatives and so forth, you find out that Truman, you know, let his family know this was an awesome decision. And even looking back on it later, you know, the harm that he had done and so forth haunted not only him, but I think most people in situations where they realize they're responsible for the loss of human life. Of course, he would have been responsible for the loss of human life had he not uh, used the weapons that he used. And by the way, he was an officer in World War One long before that. So he had already seen the devastating effects of things like flamethrowers, which also burned people alive. And so the question of horrible weapons and so forth was just inflated for him. It was not something he had disregarded or not considered. He had seen people be burned alive and, and horrible tragedies in World War I himself. This was just a matter of scale for him in some ways. But there were many, many other factors that had to be considered. 
Japanese were beheading American prisoners constantly. They were using flamethrowers as well on large groups of men who had already been captured. He was getting these reports of great horrors that were going on already. Was his just a matter of retaliatory horror? He, he couldn't tell. No bomb had been dropped before how profound this impact would be. So, And he had people lobbying him on all sides. There were physicists and others who had said, you know, once you open Pandora's box, this nuclear power could end the world. You, you need to stop. Um, and people left the Manhattan Project and other projects because they were so concerned in this way. There were other people who were saying, if you don't use this bomb, uh, the Russians will eventually develop it. There will be future Hitlers and others who could use it. People like terrorists could use it. Um, you know, psychopaths who are not working for any country could get hold of it. Um, we'd better use it responsibly so that others don't, and then it'll be a deterrent. No one will want to do this again. Those kind of arguments were coming at him, not only him, but Roosevelt, who preceded him, and others in the development, uh, Oppenheimer and so forth. And they had an awesome decision to make, a very, very difficult decision. And as I mentioned, the book is called Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage. Um, and whether it's the right thing or moral courage, um, it might not always be the same thing to different people. Um, what is the relationship between morality and religion, for example? I found that there was quite a pattern here uh, in people that they all believed in something higher. Now, those who were people of faith, um, that something of higher might have been Allah in Malala's case, or might have been Krishna in Gandhi's case, he was a devout Hindu, might have been Jesus in the case of William Wilberforce, uh, who gets a chapter in the book. Um, might have been God for John Adams, who's a president who faced an awesome decision as well. Uh, it could have been uh, the center of their faith in terms of the four I just mentioned. But others might have been more secular and said they were doing it for education or they were doing it on behalf of humanity. Uh, in Rachel Carson's case, she was a lapsed Christian, so she did have faith in the background, but she was doing it for nature. She was doing it for all those species that didn't have a voice and children who didn't have a voice and so forth. So people may have said they were doing it for humanity or for some abstract secular term, or they may have put it more in religious terms uh, that their faith had instilled in them for, for decades before they made the decision. Is there a, um, a universal moral code? You know, people have debated that in ethics for as long as ethics has been around. If it's right, it's right. Some people say if it's wrong, it's wrong. And others say, no, it depends very much on the culture. Um, you can't tell people in India that cows are not sacred uh, any more than you can tell beef eaters that they can't kill cows. You know, it depends on what their perspective is. And um, I think there's some truth in that, but for me, uh, I draw the line in several places. For example, no matter what culture you're in, genocide is not acceptable. No matter what culture you're in, rape is not acceptable. Child abuse is not acceptable. 
even if your faith teaches it to you. So um, for me, I draw the line in some places, but I am open-minded about the fact that if people come from a culture that honors something that seems very wrong and different to me, I'm not sure I have the right to tell them what to do any more than we would want people to come in uh, to America and impose their culture on all of us. Is is the golden rule the ethical standard that most people accept? Some variation on that. Um, and many people think the golden rule is the best way to put it. Immanuel Kant, the great German philosopher, said, when you make your decision, make it as if everyone in the world would make this same decision. What would the world be like if all of them did it? So he's not just thinking about the person you do it to, but you know he, he takes it beyond that. And there are many other versions of what we might call reciprocity, the notion that what happens in one direction should happen in the other, just like Newton's third law for every action, there's an equal act, opposite reaction. What makes the golden rule special is that your motivation is also strong. You're not just doing it because someone will then help you in return. That's called quid pro quo or tit for tat. But you're doing it because you genuinely love your neighbor. That's where the golden rule comes from. And if that's the case, they feel the genuineness of it, and they want to reciprocate in most cases. Treat others as you would like to be treated. And by the way, we looked at um, what qualities all of these people had in common, uh, all 12 of these people. When I say we, I mean my assistant looked at this a bit too. And we came up with, Love and respect for others no less than self was one of the ten qualities. So there you go with with the golden rule. But there were nine others. Uncompromising stamina under pressure, a longing for fairness, service to a higher cause or being. We talked about that. Yeah. Self, self-discipline, inner stillness, integrity, compassion, persistence, and, of course, the one we're talking about, courage. Those ten qualities all came to the fore when you look at these people. And integrity, when you talk about integrity, to whom? Well, again, there are levels to that. It starts with yourself. To thy own self be true. If you can't be true to yourself, if you can't <laughs> feel you're honoring your own integrity, it's pretty hard to move beyond that. But integrity often means accountability. Um and you may be accountable. You're accountable to your employer and to your audience, just as I am. Um, but we also have accountability to our families, uh, if we are religious, to our faith or our God or whatever we believe in. We have accountability to a higher purpose, even if we're secular and don't have a faith. It, it often is to justice or whatever it is we say is our motivating purpose. Um, we may be accountable also to people who have legal agreements with us. We have contracts to fulfill and promises to keep and so forth. And most of us, I would hope, are accountable to our own conscience. And conscience is a major guide for integrity. When comparing these these 12, um, and they, they had these, these 10 traits in common, 
um, I, I, I don't want to give too much away because I think people should read the book because these are fascinating portraits, but were there some examples that didn't make the book that stand out for you? You know, all of the time. You know, people are asking me, is Robert Mueller someone who you should have mentioned? He had Interesting. You know, all, all these people who have been on the hot seat recently, should they have testified or not, to what extent? Um, you know, if you know something about someone, should you bury that person if you think they're unethical? And or should you consider what, what what would happen if they were if the roles were reversed and they were doing it to you? Um, there are a lot of people in the woodwork who know things. Should they be whistleblowers, knowing that their family could be, you know, killed or punished, especially in many countries where things are very, very violent? Um, and I always err in the direction of courage, of standing up and taking a strong stand. But I certainly understand. In Edward R. Murrow's case, he not only got death threats, his child got death threats. And you think thrice who, about that. Who, who uh, was it, that? Edward R. Murrow, the oh, great yeah, journalist. Yeah. yeah, great journalist. And we still have many, you'll listen to TV stations saying, we won the Edward R. Murrow Award and so forth. That right. points back to a journalist who worked first in World War II, uh, reporting to Americans firsthand what was going on, and he earned a great respect then. And then he worked for CBS when uh, television came along, as well as CBS Radio for a while. And his career led him to make a horrible decision about whether he would oppose Joe McCarthy, uh, the leader of the Red Baiting and of the House on Un-American Activities Committee that led to uh, the blacklist and. Um, the Red Scare and all those things that we read about that were very hard to live with in a day when anybody could be accused of being a communist for even having friends who were leaning a little bit to the left. And so uh, many people committed suicide by virtue of what Joe McCarthy did to their reputation, smearing their reputation. Other people were blacklisted and couldn't work for years and so forth. Edward R. Murrow knew that when he had to decide was he going to create a program exposing Joseph McCarthy and his techniques and his deception and many other problems that he presented for the American people. And uh, so when he did that, Edward R. Murrow not only got death threats himself, but kind of a tipping point was when his wife and children got them. And he began to realize that almost everyone in his world was not safe if he went ahead and opposed McCarthy. And so I think at certain points like that, you have to decide, is it worth it? Do you want to be a moral exemplar at all cost, even cost to your family, or not? And he ultimately decided to oppose him. He did, although he took a lot of precautions to protect his son and his wife got them out of Dodge, so to speak, and made sure there were people around them who could care for them. What about the recent case of uh, Julian Assange and, and leaking classified information? Um, there have been several different people accused of leaking information, um, many of whom have said uh, they did it because it was the right thing. It was something the American people needed to know. Um, 
is that in the same class as as some of the people that we're talking about and that you talk about in the book? Yeah. In the book, I sneak in some philosophers here and there um, <laughs> uh, because uh, this book is intended for classroom use, either in high school or college, as well as, uh, you know, for the average reader. So I don't want to overwhelm the public reader with a lot of academic stuff, but I do have some in there. And the most classical ethical philosophers, Aristotle, who argued in in this way, and Confucius argued in the same way in the Asian tradition, that the middle path is best. And so in a case like Julian Assange, um, one extreme would be publishing all of the names uh, and everything you get, and another extreme would be totally withholding it. But for comprom- compromise sake, or for the sake of uh, what Aristotle calls, you know, the uh, the wise mean between deficiency and excess. Um, with Assange, you might honor some kind of middle ground where he would release some documents and not others, knowing that he's risking exposing the lives of certain people, or of releasing many documents but with the names redacted so that you can't tell who they are, um, or releasing them over time in such a way that people are retired and out of harm's way when they come out. There, There's a lot of middle ground that you can consider, and so a lot of people work in the Aristotle tradition or the Confucius tradition of seeking the middle way. Now, I'm not saying that that is the best way or the only way, but in the book I do introduce these different possible ways of approaching ethical decisions before at the end recommending what I think these 12 point toward in the aggregate, the best ways to make ethical decisions. That comes out in the in the end of the book. And and one of the things that, that occurs to me, especially uh, thinking about John Adams and uh, other founders of uh, our country, there was a choice to be made to conduct a revolution or not. And the decision to, to conduct that revolution, although it happened in degrees, but... Um, but the choice was, if you, if you win, you're the founders of a new nation. If you lose, you're traitors. How much do outcomes impact the decision that was made? Absolutely. A very good question. When we look at this throughout each chapter toward the end, there are 10 important factors that each of them considered. And I go into to what degree were these crucial factors. And one of them is impact or consequences. And so that's very much aligned with outcomes. Um, And there are other factors too, like notions of fairness and justice may have been what was driving them. Or a question of ends and means. Or a tone. Was it a high tone or a low tone? Are the motivation, or what about their loyalties? To whom are they most loyal? All of those kinds of things. And in the revolution, are you more loyal to your government, the British, or are you more loyal to your friends and neighbors who feel overly taxed and stressed and um, in some cases even tortured? Um, And your values, your principles, the cultural context, 
uh, all of those factors um, are things that were considered to one degree or other in the decisions by these people. And certainly the impact or consequences, the outcomes, as you're saying, are crucial. Truman did not want to lose the war, for example. Um, and this was a major question for William Wilberforce, who some people may not have heard of. He was the, the single most important person in ending the slave trade in England. And uh, he was a, a parliamentary leader who, for years, fought against the slave trade without any success whatsoever. He was you know, defeated like 200 to 12 and so forth until finally he could turn that around. And for him, those consequences were enormous. He didn't want to see people enslaved. He was a devout Christian and couldn't understand how slavery could possibly compute in a Christian world of love your neighbor, you know. And uh, it just didn't make sense that uh, if you loved people, you would take advantage of them in that way. And he, he was a very principled man. But he had to decide whether or not to lie to Parliament because he had tried almost everything else and been defeated and defeated and defeated. And he was becoming older and he was quite ill. Uh, he was a man who faced death through illness many times. And so he thought that the consequences and the impact were more important than his own reputation. As a devout Christian, he did not want to be seen as a liar. He did not want to be seen as deceiving in any way. But ultimately, he had to face the question of, if nothing else worked, can I play a kind of dirty trick in Congress, since other people are doing that all the time, to get the votes? And um, for him, the consequences were ultimately more important than the, the principle of never lying. When you talk about the, um, uh, the impact on, on JFK, on uh, throughout the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and his ultimate decision um, to try to find a, a more peaceful, more diplomatic way out of the uh, alleged nuclear face-down. Um, what about the role of Khrushchev in that? Um, you know, we were, of course, led to believe here that uh, had we make, had made any move toward Cuba, that uh, Khrushchev would retaliate with nuclear weapons. Um, would he have, or was that just part of the rhetoric? Yeah. So you have to remember that um, those were the days where television was showing people Khrushchev angrily banging on the table when he didn't get his way. Um, with his shoe, um, making him look like in that situation, many other situations, he was a primitive, uh, and he was a man who would use force quite easily, and he could blow his temper. And when you blow your temper uh, with a lot of other people uh, around you uh, who are nervously wondering if their lives are at stake, as many members of his party were, um, you can only imagine what Americans feared from Khrushchev uh, thinking that he could easily retaliate for anything. Kennedy had all kinds of hidden factors, too. By the way, if you look at all the drugs that he was on at that time, he had a horrible injury from World War II. Right. It was very difficult for him to sleep. Tom, um, Tom, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have to put a comma here. I have another break coming up. Can you stick around so we can wrap things up a little bit? Ab absolutely no problem. Okay. I'll be back with more with ethics professor Dr. Tom Cooper 
right after this. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and Start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. 
Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman study sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman's sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you. Could you be happy if your name this was This is Sarsaparilla? U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Continuing my uh, conversation about ethics with ethics professor Dr. Tom Cooper, who has a new book called... Um, Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage. Tom, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you. Just before the break, we were talking about uh, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis a little bit and how much uh, um, of of the fear we had of Khrushchev was legitimate. And you were talking about sort of the... um, the era we lived in. It was uh, just in the wake of the the McCarthy hearings that we talked about earlier. There were movies like Ru- The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. I remember mm-hmm. Boris and Natasha making big trouble for Moose and Squirrel. Um, <laughs> it, it was a time when um, the Soviet Union was a clear enemy. But would Khrushchev have decided to destroy life on that kind of scale? That's that's the question. You know, they both had to look into the looking glass and say, would they want to be remembered as the person who, you know, opened the door to total destruction? Uh, Truman had already dropped the bomb and shown how devastating it was, but the difference in this case was that both sides had the bomb. So if one had dropped the other would have had to follow. And it was the age of tit-for-tat. We still have tit-for-tat with Russia. If diplomats get exposed, get you know, um, excluded from embassies on one side, they get expunged from embassies on the other side. And everything was tit-for-tat in that day with the, the Cold War. Um, and so it was very clear if one side proceeded with nuclear war, the other would. And here's a case where, once again, a kind of Aristotelian or Confucian compromise was chosen. He didn't decide to go to war with them, thank God. But on the other hand, he had to stand firm in some way. So he went with the option that Robert McNamara posed for him and some of his other advisors. um, And that was to set up a military blockade to prevent the Russians from bringing more missiles in and to stop their ships, and fortunately, the ships were stopped, and they turned around and went back the other way. But, you know, it wasn't an easy decision. Both Khrushchev and Kennedy had what we called hawks in those days, people who were very um, militarily aligned and aggressive in terms of taking hardline policies. And uh, Kennedy was a younger leader, and he had all these veterans there, And uh, Khrushchev knew that in the party, the way party politics work, if you don't make the right move, you know, there are other people in the party waiting to take your place. It's a very slippery slope that you live on uh, as a Russian leader, and that's why so many people get killed if they're a threat around them. The same happens with Kim in North Korea. So they both had pressure from their hawks, but they also had um, diplomatic uh, pressure, too. The diplomats in their corps always like to negotiate rather than go to war. And that was true on both sides. And there was a very different culture as well. For Kennedy, there was the democratic culture. And so he might not get reelected if he made the wrong move. And I'm sure he considered that. But 
the party ran everything for Khrushchev, and so his concern was not so much re-election, but rather the behind-the-scenes manipulations of rivals. And they both had a lot to consider there, but ultimately, ultimately, the choice of you know, ending life as we know it must have been the most important. Now, a lot of the things that you talk about in the book, doing the right thing, um, these uh, 12 portraits in moral courage, they're life and death issues. They are, they are big. Uh, they, they are decisions with big consequences. But what are the lessons that those, who, uh, those of us who have um, ethical dilemmas that don't have nearly the same consequences. Right. So at the end of the chapter, I do outline a lot of that. I outline what can we learn, whether we have what seems like a minor decision or a major one. Um, and people do have major decisions in their own life. If you're deciding whether to put your parents in a nursing home, that may seem minor to somebody a thousand miles away, but to you that may be the most important decision, and for them it's certainly a huge decision. Their whole life is about to change, and for some it may be their whole life is about to end their life as they know it. Um, so some of these decisions, whether to take someone off life support who you deeply love, you know, for me, if I have to decide whether to fail or pass a student who hasn't done very well in my class, that's an agonizing decision. I once had a student from Rwanda who said if he didn't get his scholarship money um, by virtue of getting an A in the class, he'd have to go back and face being killed uh, by, by the rival faction in his home country. So we may not all have life and death decisions that are thousands of people, but we do have decisions that severely impact individuals. And what we decide to tell our children, you know, about how much screen time and how late to stay out and, you know, whether or not they can drink and smoke and all kinds of other things, we may see as relatively small in the larger scale of things, it may totally change their lives. And um, so we're setting history in motion. The decisions we make may seem small, but they, they may inspire other people. Uh, I often get letters back from former students, what you said changed my life. And I don't even remember, you know, saying that specific <laughs> thing. And you're in a situation like that, too. Those of you in the media, you know, you have thousands of people listening to you. Something you say could change their whole life. Um, even George Bush, when he said, I don't eat broccoli, had all kinds of broccoli yeah. people coming yeah. after him because of the media. So I, I don't think we know the full impact of what we do. Uh, and often it takes other people giving us feedback or telling us 20 years later, when you said this, it meant that. And therefore, I think it's important to know how to make these decisions wisely because we have more influence than we realize. Well, Tom, we have to end it there. I can't believe how fast the time has gone. Um, the name of the book is Doing the Right Thing, 12 Portraits in Moral Courage by Ethics Professor Dr. Tom Cooper. And, uh, Tom, as I promised, um, let's once again let people know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about and about you and, of course, about the book. Absolutely. So go to Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. If you prefer the Kindle, it's much cheaper, and you can get that at Amazon as well. But most people, I think, still prefer the paperback. And so 
Uh, I mean, you can ask your bookstore for it, and there are many other ways, but because people are often preferring to do things online during the pandemic, I'd start with Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Well, Tom Cooper, thanks again. Thank you very much, Tom. One thing about this world you can't depend on anything The leaders that we follow, they can't even write their name But here we are in America Ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on Our children going hungry, teens are turning to crime And politicians know it's true, but they ain't got no time in America, nothing seems to change, it just goes on and on and on. But there may be people who truly do care, they may be mighty, but still they lack the key. I pray that someday these people will finally declare that even heroes can do it all. To know the one you love is cheating That's the life in America Someone stop the train You can't go on and on Ooh, and where's the Constitution When you need it to refer The things that are unlawful Have the papers all been burned Yeah, that's the life in America Should I still remain or just go on and on and on
Hi, I'm Alexander Zajic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 